Let's pray. Father and our God, as we come to your word, we recognize that the secret things belong to you, our God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so we pray that as we seek to deal with the things that have been revealed to the Apostle John by yourself, we pray that you might grant us your spirit to open our eyes, our understanding, so that we might indeed behold wonderful things out of your word. And in so doing, we pray that you would grant us grace, that we might respond, seeking to obey that which you have uh, commanded us to obey, and in so doing, bring glory to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Reading Revelation chapter 10. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Take note of how John describes this mighty angel. He was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again, and that word again indicates that this is a recommissioning of the apostle. John had been commissioned on at least two previous occasions in chapter one, and chapter 4, you must again prophesy. Now that does not merely mean uh, speak about future events, but also to current events. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Amen. I've entitled my message, When Time Runs Out. And I do so because it's based on verse 6 where John tells us that there would be no more delay. 
What's John saying there in speaking about no more delay? After all, it's been 2,000 years, hasn't it, since these words were written. So how much longer is no more delay? You see, in saying that there will be no more delay, the text is saying that time is going to run out. That things will not go on like it is forever. That Jesus will wrap things up when he comes to claim his bride, the church. And we've seen that in the previous few chapters. Yes, it will be in God's time, but we are told here that it will happen and it will be sooner than we think. So far we've seen that this, with the sounding of the first six trumpets that there is still time for repentance before the final judgment takes place. In fact, this is what the trumpets signify. These are instruments of warning and we looked at the first six trumpets in chapter 9. Warning to the world that judgment is coming and that it's time to repent and believe in the gospel. And what's more, there has been an escalation, hasn't there, of things that were spoken of, that, is, that has been brought, uh, brought uh, into the world. For example, from a quarter of the human population, which is spoken about in the seals, we come to now seeing that it's a third of the human population in the sixth trumpet. And here in chapter 10, this chapter is another interlude which comes in the middle of the sounding of the trumpets, as it did when the seals were being opened. We saw there was an interlude there as well, when the seventh seal was opened and it revealed the seven trumpets. And now that the six trumpets have been revealed, here again is another interlude before the seventh trumpet is revealed. And we'll see that in the next chapter. It almost seems that God is giving this interlude to John because of the shock or the distress that must have overtaken John and his readers as well. As they are confronted with the severity and the extent of the judgment spoken of in the previous chapters in the opening of the seals and the trumpets, God is giving his people some comfort and reassurance that in the midst of all that has been spoken about with the seals and with the trumpets, God is saying, don't be afraid. You are my people. Why? You will not face condemnation. Why? Because you, are, you have been sealed. And we looked at what that meant in my previous messages. God's people are sealed. However, as we look at these uh, chapters which deal with the seals and the trumpets and the seven bulls, we must realize that they are not totally separate events from each other. With each, with each event that happens at different times. Rather, there is an overlap of each other and they describe some of the same events which will take place as time rolls on. And so John tells us at the beginning of this chapter that he saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And immediately we read of another mighty angel, we wonder who the angel was. And that's the first area I want to focus on. And then secondly, to look at the description of the scroll. Firstly, the description of the angel. Verse 1 describes this angel. He comes down from heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow above his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. 
The word angel can be translated messenger. We are told that he is robed in a cloud, which is judgment language in the Old Testament. And I can't go into all the passages or we'll be here all morning. Also in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, we are told that Jesus will come on the clouds of heaven. He will come in judgment. So to say that this angel is robed in a cloud, is speaking in terms of judgment. But he also has a rainbow above his head, which again has an Old Testament reference to the Lord having a radiance around him like that of a rainbow. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28. We also told his face was like the sun. Jesus is spoken of as his face was shining like the sun in chapter 1 and verse 16 of Revelation. His legs were like fiery pillars. Again, chapter 1 verse 15. He's spoken of, Jesus is spoken of as having feet like burnished bronze. He also tells us that the angel's voice was like the roar of a lion. Again, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so for all these reasons, there are those who believe that this mighty angel is the Lord Jesus. Personally, I don't believe that this is Jesus who is spoken of here. Simply because Jesus should not be seen as an angel. And John tells us it's another mighty angel. And he uses the Greek word alos, meaning another of the same kind. Another of the same kind of angel. If you remember, we saw another mighty angel spoken of in chapter 5. And when we get to chapter 18 and verse 21, we will see a reference to a mighty angel. And so it's likely that John has in mind the angel of chapter 5 when he refers to another mighty angel. Jesus is never spoken of as an angel in the New Testament. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews in speaking of Jesus, he's at great pains to tell us that he is greater than the angels. He is much superior to the angels, he says, as his name, as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. And he has God saying, let my angels worship him. Let them worship the Lord Jesus. And so while I don't believe John is speaking about the Lord Jesus, I guess given the commentaries I've read and people are divided on this, I guess I would be in good company if this is Jesus, as there are scholars who believe that it is. So if you're asked, who do you believe the, the mighty angel is in chapter 10? Is he an angel or is he Jesus? Just say yes, and you'll be right. Well, whether it is or it isn't, what is true is that this angel reflects the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus we could say that he represents the Lord Jesus. The text tells us he comes down from heaven. In other words, he comes with authority and he comes with God's message. And another truth that highlights, the, uh, that highlights this fact as well is that we are told he plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What's that saying to us? Simply that he is claiming authority and power over the land and the sea. It's the lordship of Jesus over the land and sea. And the rising of his right hand, which John refers to, 
invoking God as a witness. You see, when he swears by him who lives forever and ever. Verse 6, when God swears, he has no one greater to swear by, and so he swears by himself. But here the angel swears by someone above him. He swears by the Lord. Now you may have also noticed that the land and sea feature heavily in this chapter. And the land and sea, you will remember, were affected when the two trumpets are sounded in chapter 8. The earth and the sea, in other words, our total environment, were the location of human suffering in the soundings of the first four trumpets. And we'll see later in chapter 13 that the dragon and the beast also rise out of the sea and the earth. And so the earth and sea are the location which from where all evil powers come. Those powers that cause suffering, as we'll see in the book of Revelation. So why do I highlight this? Because we are told that all this is under the feet of Jesus. Now what does that mean? When the angel plants his feet on the land and on the sea, it's highlighting the truth that Jesus has authority over the land and sea and over all the evil powers that arise from them. He is Lord. He is in control. He is sovereign. And he has power over all that there is. In fact, he has authority over the whole universe that he himself created, doesn't he? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he told his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And here in what the angel does, we have a portrayal of the truth that the kingdoms of this world belong to Jesus. That's what the text is saying. He is Lord and he has climbed them through the cross. Not through military power or any human uh, means that we employ to die in war, but through the cross and through the defeat of Satan. And you will remember that Satan in the temptations uh, didn't want him to climb the kingdoms in that manner because in the temptations, Satan offered Jesus a crown without a cross. He says, if you fall down and worship me, all this will be yours. He was saying to Jesus, Jesus, you have come to restore the kingdoms of the world, but I can give them to you now if you fall down and worship me. No such thing, Satan. Only God is to be worshipped and he alone. Indeed, I have come to claim the kingdoms, but I will do it through the cross and through your defeat, which will be effected in my finished work. Stop for a moment and think about what has gone before in regards to the seals and the trumpets. We've seen in the previous messages that demons have been released. All kinds of evil have stormed the earth during the tribulation, wars, earthquakes, fires, storms. We've seen that immorality, the persecution of God's people, the church, Evil is being called good. Good is being called evil. Millions of unborn have been aborted and so on. And it seems that Satan is winning from what we've seen in the previous chapters. I mean, if you take it at face value, you would have to say that, wouldn't you? But the reality is brought to us here in the gospel. I want to highlight that. The reality is brought to us in the gospel. And it's throughout this passage. Why? 
because the mighty angel, the one who represents Jesus, stands with authority, planting his right foot on the sea and the left foot on the land. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, or the one who represents him. And he rose, says the text. And as the prophet Amos says, the lion has roared, who will not fear him? And that's what John hears. And so we take heart as we hear what is about to come. Notice that the, John hears the angel's voice. The angel shouts like a roar of a lion and it was the sound of seven thunders. These are the seven thunders of judgment. John wants to write down what is heard, but he is prevented from doing so in verse 4. And you could almost picture John ready to write down, but he stopped. But you wonder what it is that John heard, don't you? Was it what was to happen when the seventh trumpet is being revealed? Is it a judgment so awful that God would not reveal it but keep it to his own counsel? Whatever it was, God has his purpose in not revealing this to John or to us. Yet another portion of revelation that we don't know about and we've seen others as well, simply because God has chosen not to tell us about it. And we need to realize that what God has revealed to us is sufficient for us to live the Christian life. Because notice that although this is not revealed to John, yet there are things that are revealed to him. He is given a little scroll to read and digest in verse 9. The implication is that although there are certain things the Lord has not told us, he hasn't left us without sufficient revelation to live our lives. He has given us all that is needed for you and I to live godly lives and to seek to follow Christ in this broken and messed up world. What he hasn't chosen to reveal us shouldn't concern us. And yet there are those in Christian circles who seek to speculate on all sorts of stuff, isn't there? about things which we are not told about. Books and movies have been made about those things. They speculate with dates of the second coming of Christ, for example, and what exactly will take place prior to the return of Christ in the order of events and so on and so forth. You see, there is no way we can be certain about the details which God has kept from us. If the Lord wants us to know those details, he would have revealed it to us. But there are certain things which he has revealed and we need to concern ourselves about those things. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, says Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. So there's the purpose in revealing these things to us. So when you read your Bible, you need to realize that there is truth revealed and there is truth concealed. Come to your Bible in that manner, especially the book of Revelation. There is enough in the Bible to make you and me wise for salvation. And we do well to focus on what God has said or revealed and not bother ourselves with those things that we don't know about. To trust him for what we don't know. But what we do know and trust Jesus for is the wonderful truth that there will be no more delay in what the trumpets have revealed. Because when the, uh, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, 
the Lord will come to save his people. God's people will be vindicated. And as we've seen with the saints in heaven, their prayer will be answered. How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And that will come to pass. It will not be long if the day when time runs out, when time shall be no more. The things which the Old Testament prophets, men, uh, men like Daniel and so on, as they looked into the future, those things will take place. Salvation has been accomplished and nothing can prevent the consummation of God's kingdom. God will wrap things up in his own time for the sake of his elect. He will not delay. Time will run out. So what does this say to the people of John's time? What does it say to you and me today? And as I considered the text, I realized that the church of John's time was a persecuted church, wasn't it? I mean, John himself was an exile on the Isle of Patmos. And here's a truth which the persecuted church, and indeed not only John's time, but the church today as well, can take to heart especially those in our world who suffer for their faith. Rome and its emperor brought the sword to bear upon those who were followers of this man Jesus. Christians were forced to, uh, was forced to acknowledge Caesar as Lord or pay with their life. And so a truth like this, that Jesus is Lord, that he is the sovereign ruler, that he has planted his foot on both the earth and the sea, that he is sovereign over it, and one day the seventh trumpet is going to sound and all God's people will be vindicated. It's that truth that would have given the people of God comfort and encouragement and strength in the midst of their persecution. The judgment will be brought to bear upon those who seek in vain to destroy his church and to harm his people. Doesn't that give you confidence as we live in a secular society today, as we face a hostile generation, hostile to the gospel here in Australia, here's a call to persevere, to persevere in the midst of the opposition we face in preaching and sharing the gospel. And I'm sure you'll be aware that it's getting increasingly difficult to share the gospel with Australians. Many don't want to know about it, and they believe that this life is all that there is. And so it's there to make the best of it without letting something like Christianity destroy it, or so they believe, as if the Christian life is some sort of killjoy life, you know, lots of no's, don't do's, and so on. The gospel is irrelevant, according to many in our society, and Christians are a dying breed, or so we are told. Social media commentator Will Ockenden from the ABC says, and I quote, It seems the promise of heaven is no longer enough to keep Australians interested in following a religion, unquote. Well, the Bible has news for guys like him. Maybe he should be told of the great multitude that no one can count who will be in heaven, not just from Australia, but from every nation and tribe and people and language. And someone perhaps should also remind him that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
Yes, it may be that Australians more and more are not only rejecting the gospel and becoming hostile towards Christianity and those who want to spread its message and stand up for its teachings and principles, but God has his people, and I've said this before, the chosen people, the chosen generation whom he will save, irrespective of who rejects the gospel. Why? Because we know that those who are the true people of God will respond to the gospel and come to Jesus for salvation. My sheep hear my voice and they will come. That's what Jesus said. Neither that he saw or Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. So we persevere, don't we? Because we know that the gospel is powerful, that God has his people in our community here in Australia who are yet to come to Christ. And so we continue to share Jesus with others, knowing that Jesus is Lord and that in him and him alone can a person find salvation and eternal life. And we do so with a sense of urgency, knowing that he will come again to wrap things up in this world and set up his eternal kingdom. And I'll say more about that in a moment. But notice secondly, the description of the scroll. John in his vision is told in verse eight to go and take the scroll from the hand of the mighty angel. And he says to the angel, give me the scroll. I wonder if John knew what he was asking for. Yes, he was following instructions from the voice from heaven, but did he realize what he was asking for? Given the content of the scroll and all that it signifies, I wonder could John cope with it? But he asked for it and the angel commands him to eat the scroll in this vision. Remember, this is a vision. And he says to him, eat the scroll. And when John does, he will find that it's sweet to his mouth. But when it hits his stomach, it will turn his stomach bitter or sour. And that's what happens. So what's that all about? What does it say to John and his readers? Well, in the fact that John was asked to eat the scroll, it's highlighting that John must first receive the message and embrace it himself. He has to eat it. He must internalize it. And not only that, but he must be prepared to take the message to others. And I'll come to that in a moment as well. Also, did you notice that the resemblance to what John does here, uh, did you notice that what John does here bears a resemblance to what Ezekiel did in that passage we read from Ezekiel? He was asked, Ezekiel was asked to eat the scroll so that he could take to heart all my words which I speak to you. But unlike John, when Ezekiel eats the scroll, it doesn't turn bitter in his stomach. It was sweet as honey. But although the word Ezekiel, the word Ezekiel was to deliver was sweet as honey, if you look at the context there and which we read from, it tells us that it was bitter as well as sweet. It doesn't use the word bitter, but it does, it, it, it's the context. He says in verse 10 of chapter 2, written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. So that's bitter, is it not? Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. And here the gospel which John was called to proclaim is both sweet and bitter. Now you're probably wondering how on earth does he get gospel out of this? 
You see, it's because the word gospel is used in verse 7. Mightn't be there in the English translation, but it's certainly there in the Greek. The word euangelion. Because when the seventh angel is about to sound the trumpet, and John is told that the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced, that word announced is the word for gospel, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. That's the sweetness that John tasted in his mouth when he ate the scroll. It was sweet in that this gospel glorifies Jesus, the Lamb, who was slain, as Revelation tells us, through which he purchased a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. How sweet is that? That's good news, and it's also sweet news to the ears of people today who respond to the gospel. That's the gospel, a gospel which John knew and experienced as real, because in being granted this vision, John saw the redeemed gathered around the throne from every tribe, nation, tongue. That's the sweetness of the gospel. Here is proof that this gospel is powerful. It converts people and grants them the sweetness of knowing God through Jesus and finding eternal life. It confirmed to John that this gospel is true and all the promises of Jesus are true. Here's, here's real hope and blessing to you and me today. And I guess it would have eased the pain and suffering of John at the hands of this tyrant emperor as he was there on the Isle of Patmos. And so to John and his hearers, this was gospel of good news, a sweet gospel if you like. But notice, it's also a bitter gospel. The scroll turned sour or bitter in the stomach of John. Now how or why is it a bitter gospel? We wouldn't speak of it in, these, in those terms, would we? We wouldn't say to someone, let me share with you the bitter gospel. Or let me share with you the sour gospel. No, we wouldn't do that. It's an interesting way of speaking about the gospel, isn't it? I'm sure you realize that there are those in the church today who want to say to us that it's a prosperity gospel. So how can you marry the two? There's bitter and there's prosperity. It doesn't add up to me, does it? That in knowing Jesus, you would, they would have you know that you would prosper, not only spiritually, but materially as well. But that's as far from the truth as you can get. You see, John's own experience on the Isle of Patmos, uh, Patmos as a prisoner would destroy that proposition that this is a prosperity gospel. It's more a gospel of suffering from my understanding of the Bible, than prosperity, isn't it? You speak to those who have been faithful and who have lived fearlessly for Jesus over many years, and they will confirm that truth. But here the text says this gospel is not just sweet in that it brings life and salvation, but it's also bitter. Why is it bitter? Because it speaks of judgment to those who don't come to Jesus. The trumpets are warnings, warnings of judgment. I mean, think of the book of Revelation alone. Leave the other parts of scripture out if you like. Revelation alone. It's sweet, isn't it? Why is it sweet? Because it tells us that the Lord will come to wrap things up and take us to be with himself. 
It tells us about the Lord Jesus reigning over everything. That heaven awaits his people and that sweetness. But it's also bitter, is it not? Because it speaks of judgment and hell for those who don't repent and come to Christ. In fact, we will find that in the very next chapter, especially in chapter 11, it focuses more on judgment than on reward. And so we find that revelation in and of itself is both sweet and bitter, just as the gospel is. Now I want to highlight, by way of application, the implications of the gospel being bitter. Most of us know the sweetness of the gospel because it's been sweet to us. We've experienced it in our own lives, so I won't, I won't say more on that, but I want to close by highlighting the bitterness of the gospel and what we will find when we seek to share it with others. The gospel, by its very nature, stands to be sweet and bitter. Sweet to those who embrace it and bitter to those who reject it. In fact, Paul tells us that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, that the preaching of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. It's bitter. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. It is sweetness. My friends, be prepared for rejection by whoever you share the gospel with, your friend, colleague, your family, whoever it might be. Be prepared to be rejected or face hostility from them because you then won't lose heart and want to give up. If you expect it and realize that that's one of the responses, then you will not lose heart. If you know and are aware that this is a possible response, you will keep going in seeking opportunities to speak to others about the Lord Jesus. Jesus wants us to be courageous, but with that also comes the call to be realistic. In a world you will in this world you will have tribulation, he says, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. And the day may come when you and I are called to suffer for the gospel. When we are persecuted for the privilege of knowing Jesus as Lord of our lives. That's the personal bitterness, if I can put it that way, that the gospel brings to those who proclaim Christ, as John found out when he was suffering for the gospel. The prophet Ezekiel, to whom the scroll was sweet when he ate it, he suffered, didn't he, for the message he proclaimed. And of primary importance is the Lord Jesus himself who preached the gospel. What happened to him? He was put to death for it. And we have him as our example. The message isn't just sweet, it's also bitter to the taste of others. Woe, 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 calls the eagle. We saw it in the previous passage. Repent or face the judgment of God. That's the gospel in a nutshell. So what should be our approach to a hostile secular world? How can we and how should we as Christians connect with a world that's indifferent, that's hostile and filled with skepticism towards the gospel and the things of Christ? Most people would laugh at us when we seek to bring a biblical perspective on issues such as relationships, marriage, morality, and so on. And it's easy, isn't it, at times to shy away from it 
and all the challenges that come our way. Perhaps because we don't feel equipped enough to take on the world with its hostility and its prejudices against the gospel. Even many pastors graduate insufficiently equipped to engage secular culture from their colleges. And so it's not surprising that most in the pews feel inadequate at such a task. One commentator says, if there's a mist in the pulpit, then there will be a fog in the pew. And so the call is to equip ourselves to reading and studying God's word and to know what we believe and why we believe it. There's so much at our disposal, isn't there, to equip ourselves. I mean, look at what we have today. We have so many resources to read. We listen to podcasts. We go on YouTube. And there's so much that we can learn. And these are blessings from God. I don't know if you see it that way. And we should see it as such and use them to equip ourselves. There's so much on apologetics, how to engage our culture and so on. Do we seek to educate ourselves biblically? So don't shy away from those who want to challenge your biblical worldview and what you believe as a Christian. Take them on. Be prepared to say, when you don't know the answer, I don't know the answer, but I will come back to you with the answer. Be honest. Don't just talk about the sweet part of the gospel, but the bitter part as well, given the context of the message. In other words, speak the total gospel, not just the part Jesus loves you. Be willing to highlight repentance and faith in Christ as the only way through which anyone can be saved. And no doubt you'll get pushback from your friends and your colleagues and your family. If you've lived as long as I have, you will remember that it wasn't too long ago you could bring a Christian view to bear at your workplace on different issues that come up. And people would listen. They may not respond to it, but they would listen. But try that today in your social gatherings, your cricket club or your tennis club. If you're prepared to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord and so on, my friends, don't expect a warm welcome. If you speak on what you believe as a follower of Christ, you will get pushed back on whatever you say. That's the secular, woke and cancel culture we live in today. So what do we do? Do we sit back and do nothing? Or run and hide because we are afraid of being ridiculed? Not so. Because from what I know of my Bible, part of the Christian faith is that we are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It may not just be physically, but it can be in, very, in many other ways as well. 1 Peter 4 and verse 14 says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Do you reckon that? Do you realize that? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. To be willing to even face persecution for the sake of it. And don't attract persecution because you're being stupid or obnoxious towards others, but because you know what you believe and you graciously, with humility, you share the gospel with people. 
willing to bring a Christian perspective to bear on the issues we face in society, to not fear the face of man. And I'm reminded of Paul writing to Timothy. Paul calls on Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.8 And he's already told Timothy that God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. If you live and speak as a Christian in Australia, it almost guarantees that you will suffer some sort of rejection or persecution. And I don't think I'm telling you anything new. So can I encourage you this morning to be those who are willing to know, uh, oh, sorry, those who are willing to learn, those who know what they believe and why they believe it by equipping ourselves in this whole area? Are you willing to share the good news of Jesus even though you suspect that the person you're sharing with could turn hostile towards you, totally reject you, walk away from you, ignore you, you might lose their friendship, who knows? The Apostle John who wrote the words of our text was the last apostle left on earth when he wrote it. He had seen many of his other friends executed for their faith. And here, he also is in exile as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. So it's no surprise that John begins the book of Revelation. You might remember that, if you can remember that fine, to chapter, nine, uh, chapter 1. John begins by saying, ours is suffering and patient endurance in Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 9. Most or all of us don't seek hostility and opposition from friends and colleagues. You'd be silly if you did. But it comes most times when we speak to people about their need for repentance, doesn't it? So would you seek to share it with someone when the opportunity comes your way? Are you seeking to train and equip yourself to do so? To be aware of some of the issues that people raise and be ready to give a reason for the fight to which you hold to. To tell people about how the Lord has changed your life and challenge them to consider their own life and seek the answers to life which most in our society are seeking for. Why? Why do we want to do all this? Simply because we love and care for people and we want to see them in heaven. And we do this with a sense of urgency because the time is running out and God says there will be no more delay once that seventh trumpet has sounded. The Lord Jesus will return and every eye will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the challenge that we've seen tonight from your word, uh, this morning from your word. We thank you, Lord God, that in seeking to speak to others about the gospel, that you have promised the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that we might be alert to the opportunities that come our way and seize them. And we pray that you, through your spirit, would grant us the courage and the words to speak in season so that we might be able to point people to Jesus 
to Jesus, the only way through which we can find, through whom we can find eternal life. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Amen.